What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, which is the recording of our live show, Anthro Alert. You can now listen at your leisure and at your convenience. If you're new here on Anthro Alert, this is where Renee and I, your hosts, and sometimes a guest, analyze, break down, and discuss different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. Hey, Bulls, you're listening to Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. If you'd like to learn more, go check us out at BullsRadio.org. It's uh, Friday afternoon, 2 o'clock, 2.03 to be precise, and that means you're listening to Anthro Alert. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, We have a special show for you guys today. Um, so sit tight and, um, be ready to, to learn. Uh, if you guys are new to Anthro Alert, let me just take uh, a few minutes and just let me, let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. So this show is about anthropology and why it matters. Uh, each week we discuss how anthropology is relevant and over time we feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology, uh, here at USF to discuss their research and to have them weigh on everyday topics or current events. We believe that this is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists to better connect with the USF community and to raise awareness of the anthropological perspective. Just like every week, we like to preface our show with the disclaimer that the statements that we make here and the opinions that we express on Anthro Alert, there are opinions, they're ours alone. Uh, they may not necessarily be representative of anthropology as a discipline, the USF Anthropology Department, USF as an institution, or student government. And so today, although Anthro Alert usually draw our source material from from the faculty and graduate students at the department, we have our very first phone interview today. Uh, so it's going to be going to be great. Tell us about that, Renee. All right, yeah, so welcome um, welcome to Anthro Alert on this wonderful, beautiful, sunny, cloudy, breezy Friday here in Tampa Bay, Florida. Um, yeah, so actually, like Spencer says, this is going to be our first live phone interview, which uh, we have not actually done before, but we're really excited about this, and we're actually very excited, too, about our first um, guest in this capacity. So this is uh, going to be Dr. Michael uh, Tomas Roman, and he's um, going to be talking to us about uh, the research that he's done in with climate change and is specifically trying to provide more ethnographic and humanistic uh, representation for uh, the people of Kiribati. And um, so, Dr. Roman, I don't know if you can hear us, just go ahead and chime in now. Hey, guys, thank you for having me on. Awesome. Yeah, good. Good to have you here, loud and clear, wonderful. Okay, good. Um, all right, so, yeah, let's go ahead and get started. Um, yeah, all right, so let's, let's, yeah, let's get it going. Uh, so, Dr. Roman, um, I think, you know, your research was kind of, you know, in the, in the early stages, you actually started as, as a Peace Corps volunteer before you um, went on to, to do your Ph.D. and things. Can you tell us about your experience as, as a volunteer in the Peace Corps? Yeah, well... Just to kind of set the scene, um, let me talk about kind of what where I'm going and what I'm trying to do with the work that I am currently doing um, that started in Peace Corps. Um, but the work that I'm doing is climate change, and it deals with human population. 
um, I think that science is obviously, you know, a very powerful tool and necessary for climate change. But what the bottleneck is, is putting a human face on it, understanding it from human perspectives, because that's what people actually respond to. That's what they actually can tie to. Um, they see charts and figures and they, they hear about facts and, and stuff that scientists really do care a lot about and stuff that does matter, but people really don't. And I think it's necessary for us to persuade the world that climate change is actually an important thing um, because from a human perspective, you can make it relatable. But from charts and graphs, it's kind of hard to think, hard thing to do. And so that's where anthropology for me came in. I was stationed in the Republic of Kiribati um, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And that was from 2000 until 2002. And um, I, I, um, I kind of ended up there by accident. And later on in the show, I'll, I'll read a piece from the uh, book proposal, from the book draft that I'm, I'm doing that talks about my experience there as a Peace Corps volunteer um, and how it was kind of an accident that I ended up there in the first place. Right. So, what was uh, what was your experience like? You know, you ended up there um, by accident, you say, and you spent you know two years there. So, you know, what was your experience really like as a volunteer? And you know, how did your time there kind of set the tone for for the research that you're doing now? It was wonderful. It was amazing. If anyone is interested in the Peace Corps, I would say definitely go learn about it. Talk to returned Peace Corps volunteers. It really changed my mind about a lot of things, and it really changed my life, changed my world. Um, I spent two years, I graduated from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, um, with a elementary education uh, teaching degree. And I was sent to the Republic of Kiribati to teach elementary school teachers on different methods of teaching and English learning and um student uh, retention and student knowledge and student gains. So that's officially what I did. I was a, a volunteer, an education volunteer. But what I think happened was I was actually more helped by the experience than I, than I helped the people that I was sent to help. Um, like I said, it gave me a very, very different perspective, a very anthropological perspective um, on humanity and uh, a different way of life, a different language, a, di a different you know, way of eating, a different way of uh, everything. And so that's kind of where the seeds of anthropology were placed in my, um, in my life. And so, you know, when right around the time that you're returning um, from being a volunteer, you know, what kind of, what were the next steps that, that you took into kind of exploring anthropology and, you know, the steps that you, you took to, you know, basically to where you are now and, and to what research you're, you're focusing on now? Well, the steps were, were um, I actually ended up going into AmeriCorps right after that. And I was working at a college in Iowa. You know, I go from the middle of the ocean on an island in the middle of the ocean to virtually an island in the middle of cornfields in Iowa. 
and mm-hmm. I was working at a college, Central College, uh, coordinating service learning for the campus community. Hey, Dr. Roman, where, where is the Republic of Kiribati? It is in the middle of the world, where the international dateline meets the equator. It is the first country in the world to see the light of day, to see the new week, month, millennium. And it, um, yeah, it's, it's something interesting about it is it has territory in all four quadrants of the earth. It's the only country to have territory in the northern, southern, western, and eastern hemisphere. So it's right smack dab in the middle of our world. Hmm. Yeah. And so going back to, um, you know, your transition from being a Peace Corps volunteer to uh, AmeriCorps volunteer. So now you were kind of, you said you were helping to facilitate service learning at the university? And that's where I learned about anthropology. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I'm going around coordinating service learning, and then um, everybody, you know, they they know the work that I'm doing because I'm there with the um, places office with the um, um, uh, learning. Oh my goodness. With the, it was very long ago. I forget mm. what the acronym stands for. Oh yeah. I, mean, I, I don't even was, remember what I did yesterday. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was experiential learning. Uh, let's just go with that. Okay. And I was coordinating with faculty across the college and, um, People were interested in, in who I was and what I was doing because, you know, it was summertime when I started working there, and I was wearing sweatshirts and long pants and uh, coats, and it's like 80, 85 degrees, and I'm out there in sweatshirts, and everyone else is in tank tops and T-shirts. And they just I was weird. Well, I had just returned from Kiribati, which is on the equator, and anything below anything below 90 degrees, I was cold. And so that's how people started to take note of who I was and what, why I was acting so weird. Return Peace Corps volunteers always deal with return um, culture shock, with reverse culture shock. And I was heavily experiencing it at that point in time. Anyway, long story short, I get a lot of attention, and people want me to talk about my Peace Corps experience. And I start talking about it, and I start talking about, well, back then it was known as global warming widely, and it was um, thought to, oh, maybe occur in 300, 400, 500 years from now. Yeah, because this this is what, 2002 around? 2002, yeah. And so there I am, you know, going around talking about where I was and what I was doing and how the ocean was rising up and how I was worried about this thing called global warming. And um, nobody would listen to me. Nobody believed it was true. Nobody believed there was a country called Kiribati, actually. And um, I kept on talking about it. And that that kind of put me forward to continue what I'm doing today. Um, and, yeah, that, that kind of set the scene. Um, so is this, yeah. is this work that you thought you would be you'd be doing or was this work that you just kind of kind of found you in a way oh it it definitely found me Mm. it definitely found me Mm -hmm. um typically when peace corps volunteers go overseas they go over for their two years and and they're done they don't they don't go back 
what happens occasionally is a Peace Corps volunteer will marry a country host national. And then, of course, there's reason to go back and forth, back and forth, because they're married into the culture. And um, what happened with me is I, I, I keep on going back um, because I, I think climate change is an issue that the whole world needs to see um, from human eyes to realize that, yeah, we have endangered nations on our map today. We have endangered human populations um, on our globe. And um, going back helps me not only maintain my connection with my kid about family. Um, every Peace Corps volunteer is assigned a family to learn the language, the culture, and the traditions, the food, how to basically survive in a different culture in a different country. And so I've kept mine... Um, I've kept my relationship with my Kiribati family for 18 years. About half of my life now has been with um, has been with that family. So, so, so this experience you had as a Peace Corps volunteer, you were particularly struck with the people of Kiribati, and you saw the connections and the correlations, and really the importance of of telling that humanistic, the, the story of the people and how climate change affects them, not in 200 years, not in 300 years, but today. And you, and you really incorporated, incorporated that into your, uh, life's, your uh, life's work and your life's mission, it sounds like. Definitely. All right. And, you know, they were talking about climate change in 1989. Um, part of my dissertation research um, looked at historically what has the country, you know, been doing to raise awareness, and when did it start? It started in November of 1989 in the Seychelles, of all places, at a conference on um, rising sea levels. So they, they've known about this for 30-plus years. Yeah, I, I mean, I can imagine because they're really on the forefront, of it, especially with that uh, powerful video that um, you shared with us and that we've put on AnthroAlert.com for people to see. All right, we're going to take a very short break. We're going to play a song. Uh, we're going to play part of a song, actually, because it's already started. We're going to play part of a song. Um, so keep it locked on WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide on TuneIn.com. Again, we will be right back. Stay tuned. Hey, Bulls. Thanks for tuning back in. You're listening to Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. Uh, thanks for coming back. You're listening to Anthro Alert. Um, we're having a we're having a good good conversation so far with um, our guest, Dr. Roman, um, our first telephone guest, actually. So things are rolling, things are going good, and we're going to hop right back into the conversation. Renee, you want to want to kick us off? Yeah, I think um, right before we we well, um, really the next thing that you know we we kind of want to discuss and tr- and ask and figure out is maybe what were some of the challenges that that uh, you faced, Dr. Roman, in, as part of this this work, or what have been maybe some of yeah some of the challenges that have uh, that have stuck out to you. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, just going back to the country of Kiribati, a big challenge is um, the disbelief in in climate change. Um, And a lot of that goes back to the missionary days when, um, you know, they were evangelized into Christianity. And um, there's a a very famous uh, uh, 
passage in the Bible that comes from uh, Noah. Uh, when the great flood happened, uh, the Noah built an ark, got animals on, and got people on, and, you know, survived the flood. And after the flood, God promised Noah never to flood the earth again. And to constantly remind people of that promise, of that covenant, uh, he created rainbows to show that he would never break that promise. Well, in Kinaros, in the ocean, where there is nothing but sun and moisture in the atmosphere, there are a lot of rainbows. Sometimes there's double rainbows, even. And so when you talk about climate change to, um, to a lot of people, they will say, oh, it won't happen because God promised never to flood the earth. Just look up at the sky and you'll see the promise. You'll see the rainbows. You'll see the covenant. So in the country alone, there is a challenge um, of, of talking about climate change, especially to the older generation, um, because of, of this covenant and the idea that um, climate change can't happen because it was promised, but also climate change, if it were to happen, it would wipe out the identity, and that's something that people don't think of, don't want to think about. It's me, I, myself, even don't want to think about that. Um, because there is a connection between the land, the people, and the country. Uh, in in the Kidwest language, there's a word called Abba, A-B-A, Abba. And it means three things. It means land, Abba means people, and Abba means country. It's kind of like the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. And um, what we're talking about with climate change is the loss of land, yes, but also the loss of identity and the loss of people. So when you're born in Kitabas, you're born on your family's land, you grow up on your family's land, you start your family on your family's land, and when you die, you're buried in your family's land. To join the ancestors and watch over that land for future generations, a climate change is coming and taking away land and taking away, actually, you know, graves as well. And there's just this break in this cosmological tie between people, land, place, and space. And um, that is a promise that God promised never to have happen again. So challenge of talking about, even talking about climate change in the country is a um, is, is something that's still there. Yeah, that, that yeah. reminds me of uh, some of the the readings that I read by Mary Douglas, who who wrote um, mm-hmm. prolifically uh, in regards to cosmology and and under and uh, mm-hmm. symbology and such, and mm-hmm. and using that to help kind of frame cultural historical context. Okay, so so that's yeah, that I would imagine that's quite a challenge as far as um, just having discussions about this and trying to uh, better understand the different perspectives that people have about this. Mm-hmm. And what so, I find out is it is changing. It has been changing over time. But still, people don't want to leave the only place that they know in this entire world. Mm. And there is no climate change refugee category that allows people to leave their country for another country. 
Yeah, that's. I mean, yeah. that's true. Because um, you look. Because again, I'm just referring back to the video that you showed, uh, or you you had a, or uh, that you shared with us. Um, there's one segment there. Is like, well, if if it ever comes to a point where people need to leave the actually evacuate and leave the island, I mean, where where would they go, right? And um, and you know, uh, issues of migration and and refugees, the status of refugees, and what what happens to people who are forced to flee for any number of different reasons, whether it's economic, political, or uh, in this case, environmental. Um, you know, how how is the the planet the the political nature of the planet really set up to accommodate and I mean do something for people that are forced to leave and that's I mean these these are like very powerful powerful questions. Yeah, it, it it's not set up because that the refugee convention was set up in the 1940s, you know, and they weren't thinking about the climate changing so drastically that it could you know wipe out countries. Uh, Right. Eventually, right. So, uh, kind of shifting from, you know, working to, I guess, uh, inform people about climate change, um, uncared about itself, to sort of informing the rest of the world that you know this will, for one, that this is an actual place, and and two, that that climate change is having a real a real impact, um, you know, on these this chain of islands. How have you been ga- engaging with with media and, and, and social media to, you know, to kind of as a platform to to push your research and, and these humanized stories um, of either your collaborators that you have in Kitabas or, you know, just the, the issue in general? How are you using these types of platforms to to share these stories? Yeah, about Three years and one month ago, we started the Humans of Kiribati, just like Humans of New York, Humans of every you know place, uh, on Facebook and Instagram, and um, that has gained a lot of traction. Uh, social media has given us, you know, leads to other media um, agencies around the world, uh, ABC, CBS, NBC here in the United States, local affiliates local newspapers, um, local magazines or national magazines, as well as, you know, The Guardian in Australia, the BBC in in Great Britain. Um, We've worked with media in the Netherlands. We've worked with media in Germany. We've worked with media in India. Um, Social media has given us a platform that we haven't had ever before. And the stories that we produce, we actually have a team of 17 people now, I think, um, stationed in Christmas Island, on Tarawa, on, in uh, the Gilbert Island chains, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Fiji, um, in Taiwan, because these are all places that Kiribati people live in the United States. And so we've worked with National Geographic. We had uh, Janice Cantrell work in Kiribati on behalf of Fulbright and National Geographic. Uh, we have uh, Anote's Art just premiered at the Sundance Film Festival uh, this year. Um, so we are working to spread the word through social media, which then helps spread the word in other forms of media um, throughout the world. 
So I, I couldn't be happier with the success that we've, we've experienced. Have you um, have you gotten any pushback from from your your work? Uh, you know, climate change is a really sensitive issue, as many of us know. You know, politically, but also for many other reasons. Um, and I know you said you've gotten a lot of foot traffic as far as you know newspapers or um, you know television news, um, magazines, whatever it may be. Um, but have you gotten any negative feedback, any any pushback for the work that you're doing, and and how do you respond to that? We do get negative feedback. It, it's rare, um, actually, because what we try and do on Humans of Kitabas is tell the world about Kitabas. So tell the world about our culture. Tell the world about you know the link, the happenings. The right now we have um, athletes in. Gold Coast, Australia, competing in the Commonwealth Games. Uh, so we're highlighting them. You know, it's just basically we're trying to tell the world about us, not the bad things. Not Every now and then we will talk about climate change, but more so we're using humans with Kiribati to tell the world about Kiribati and that the place exists and that it's a wonderful place. It's a great country. I'll, I'm going to be there in next month um we just want the world to know that kiribati exists and all the good things about it so there hasn't been negative feedback um like i said if there is any it's few and very far between Mm -hmm. because we're promoting a culture we're promoting humanity we're promoting um ways of life we're promoting good things and we just want people to know that 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 we're here. Hmm. And uh, so let me ask in regards to like the humans of Kiribati um, via Facebook or Instagram, if if you found that um, any one or the other was better suited to kind of getting these stories out and, and kind of talking about the culture, um, I don't know, just, just in case someone's listening that would like to try and emulate uh, some of the work that you're doing. Um, I don't know if you'd have any any re- reflection or feedback or commentary on that. I mean, as in any anthropological venture, you have to get you have to gain entree into the community. You have to understand the community. Um, you have to have family. You have to have connections. You have to have key informants. You know stuff that doesn't happen over one or two years, but stuff that happens over decades of time um, so that you you really get legitimacy and you really push forward um, with the right people and the right stories and, and things like that. So to understand the language, um, to, to possibly translate stuff, um, just you have to... You have to know your subject. You have to. You have to know. You have to know to the point of being a part of your subject. Yeah. Do Do you find that any particular type of images or um, stories are are particularly impactful? I mean, uh, again, I'm going to refer back to that video. Uh, the Olympic weightlifter who you know did yeah. the dance and, and it's like that that was very eye, that was very eye catching and so a lot of a lot of people could could see that and pay attention. And say, oh well, well, what is this you know what is this nation why 
like what's happening and then and then you start to kind of build more of that um that awareness and response but um yeah like uh, were there any other uh images or stories that, that you thought did exceptionally well in capturing attention well david's story is great um he he dances because of climate change he dances to raise awareness he lost his house actually in a storm uh in a tidal surge because of you know king tides i want to say maybe two years ago he lost his house uh so this is someone who is physically impacted by what is happening in our in our global society it's bringing those stories out and we we push we do interviews we do um videos we do we've even you know we've worked with movie productions anything to put a human face on climate change um in that capacity that gets so much attention global attention um is going to be a great big thing for us and that's kind of what we're trying to do with humans with kidabas we don't have the global stage like the olympics but um we we do we do try and tell the story from a human perspective whether it's a child an adult a grandmother grandfather um we try and get everyone's voice in there to be included and uh you know there's a lot of pride people don't want to leave um that's where they're from mm-hmm. and a lot of the older generation have said that's where we will die mm. yeah so i mean you you've had a lot of you spend a lot of time on kiribas um you know you have very intimate relationships with with people there you said you have you know family members there that you've known for you know decades at this point several years uh so you do you find this work more of like a a personal venture life work more than more academic or research oriented type venture and you know how do you how do you kind of separate those two between being you know, like an academically trained anthropologist but also you know, you have family members on the island, so this is obviously a really um, kind of crucial issue for you personally as well. Yeah, I mean, doing field work at home yeah. gives no meaning to the word homework. Yeah. So um, how, how do you deal with that? It, it, you know, I went into anthropology because it would allow me to go back to the country. Hmm. The country came first. I never did the the academic work for academic accolades. Um, mm. I did it for the country, and I think I think that's what keeps me going. That's what keeps on pushing me. It, it's not making talks at, at conferences, even though that's where we met. Um, it's it's not producing papers for the academy. It's about my friends and and people whom I call my family, um, and that's and that's certainly um, sorry to interrupt. You, that's certainly one of the, um, I think one of the the principles of um, our our radio pr- program podcast is that we really we really intend to showcase applied anthropology and and exactly this type of work that's um, hands on and and is really trying to make make an effort um, in improving improving someone's situation and so um 
good. Yeah, so so I'm so I'm rather appreciative to hear uh, that this type of work is being done, and that anthropology has a role in it, and that uh, people like you are trying, really just trying their best to, to get the word out. Um, yeah, and you said you used anthropology as an avenue to to get back on the island. How did anthropology, you know, set you up with with the methods and the theories to really start to to understand what the issue is and to to navigate, um, you know, the island itself and, and the different ideals on climate change and just, you know, all the different complexities. How did anthropology, do you think, set you up for that? Well, I got I got to um, give a shout-out to my my Ph.D. advisor, Richard Skaglian, who, um, who is a Pacific anthropologist. Uh, he did his work in Papua New Guinea, um, but he really opened my eyes to... You know, Margaret Mead, Samoa, everything that happened, Malinowski, <laughs> getting stuck in Chobrian Island, he really opened my eyes that, yeah, people do do this work that you are so interested in, Mike, and we want you and our department at the University of Pittsburgh to um, to pursue what you want to do in the Pacific Islands. And um, it, it, it opened my world to... Uh, to a whole new, new way of thinking. Not not even knowing that people did this, because like I said, I was an education mm. uh, undergrad. I you know I was teaching elementary education in, in Kamana Island in 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 the smallest island in the Gilbert chain of, of Kiriba. Um, no idea that people actually went out and talked to you know people from other cultures and. And uh, try to understand their 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 ways of living and um, their ways of being. And mm. anthropology gave me gave me a huge background to pursue what I had been doing in Peace Corps, what I had started in mm. Peace Corps. Mm. And so there was a natural tie-in, mm-hmm. but um, it just gave me stronger methods and and theory that that um, I was able to utilize. Mm. And still am through, you know, environmental anthropology as well. Right, right. Okay, well, I think we're gonna um, we're gonna take another short break right there. Um, we're gonna just play about a minute or two of some music, um, but make sure to stay tuned because we'll be right back in the conversation with Dr. Roman. So stay tuned. Hey, bulls! Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for coming back. You're listening to Anthro Alert on WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa. 1620 a.m. on campus and always streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. Uh, so we're in the the last third of our first hour here on Anthro Alert with, with Dr. Roman. And so we're going to just uh, continue our conversation about, about his work in Kitabas and climate change and all the complexities that come along with that. All right, so Dr. Roman, you have a uh, a book is in the works. Um, can you tell us just yeah. a little bit about about the progress there, um, next steps, you know, what what your book will be about? Well, the book is a um, narrative nonfiction uh, book that uh, talks about climate change uh, from Kiribati's perspective. So there's three parts to it. Um, the first is talking about my experience, my work, living and, and learning and working in Kiribati as a Peace Corps volunteer. The second part is uh, climate change. I'm talking about climate change and and um, and what's happening. And the third part is looking at 
my Fulbright experience. So going to New Zealand and living with Kiribati migrants, not climate change migrants, but Kiribati migrants, and seeing how they start their new lives in a new country in New Zealand. So it kind of, um, it kind of takes climate change from the scientific point of view to the humanistic point of view. And so what... You know, how did you, how did the books kind of transpire? Where did you get the idea to to break it down into those specific three sections, or um, or even like your the your Fulbright experience going to New Zealand? You know, how did you decide to to do that work and and things like that? Well, the initial part started with me writing home every week. There's only a plane that came once a week to my island. And so every week I would write home to mom and dad and they kept those letters and uh, they gave them to me like 10 years after the fact. And so that made up the first half of the book. And the second half, well, you know, that's just talking about climate change and how mm-hmm. things are, are changing and, and with the globe. And mm-hmm. then the later part, so um, me going to New Zealand, right, looking at what happens to cultures when they are taken away from their homes because, you know, I was seeing something like that happening in the future. And that was in 2010. Yeah, like any good uh, set of parents keeping everything that their child gives them. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They did. And they even um, they even dated them and put them in a binder for me. It was it was beautiful. Right. They did like half the work. <laughs> yeah. They did do half of the research and half of the work. Yes. Um. But it's called When There Was No Money, the book. Uh, that's the working title of it. And it, it, before there was money, there was community. And before there was money, there there was less pollution. And, and um, um, the, the, the point behind climate change is, it's, for me, it seems to be all about greed. Mm. And that's kind of why I'm, I'm calling it When There Was No Money. Mm. And so uh, when, is the, when is the expected date for or release date for that? That's kind of asking when your dissertation is going to be done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it'll yeah. be done when it's done. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. No, I, was, I had a, a conversation with an editor this morning, and so we're just now getting the ball rolling on, on um, moving forward with the, uh, with the plan. So that's all I'll say about that right now. Excellent. Well, hopefully we don't have to wait too long. Um, I believe you have a uh, some uh, uh, an excerpt, a reading from the book that you wanted to share. Yes, I have a piece. And so I have um, dated it September 16, 1999. I'm a senior in college, 20 years old, dressed in my one and only suit. I'm 15 minutes early for the interview. The secretary says it's okay, leads me down into a room where I will meet Jeff, Miami University's Peace Corps recruiter. The room is cold, I'm uncomfortable, and hungry. After a 30-minute interview, Jeff asks if there's anything I would like to say. Yes, I say. I hate hot weather, I'm allergic to fish, and I'm severely prone to motion sickness, especially on boats. Lesson one. The we is bigger than the eye. November 16, 2000. I'm a Peace Corps trainee in the Central Pacific Island nation of Kiribati, where there is nothing but heat, fish, and boats. Now, it may have been because I was a foreigner living in a foreign country, or because I was living just inches above the sea level without any plan B. 
plan B being a storm shelter, higher ground, or a basement filled with emergency supplies. Or maybe it was because I had just turned 22 the week before. Whatever it was, the power and intensity of that storm was something unparalleled to anything I'd ever experienced before. What minimal shelter we had either collapsed or blew away with the storm's initial winds and violent oceanic tides. That night, I feared for my life. The ocean would swallow me whole. I was returning from the village when the winds picked up. The trees rocked, the seas roughened, the ocean grew larger and larger. The rain poured down. It's storming, but it's no big deal, I thought to myself. We made it back to our home and waited for the storm to pass. 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, then midnight, along with the wrath of God I had never before seen. I heard it first. The winds took on the sounds of a moving freight train. The seas roared like the sound of Naka. Naurio. Poseidon's rage. My hand searched for the flashlight. I picked it up, flicked the switch, and poked the torch through the Hudson's coconut spines. What I saw, I could never forget. I saw waves rising and crashing down deep into the land. I saw the land and sea level with each other. Rain flying in every direction, water rushing in as though its sole mission was to flood and destroy. And then that's when I felt it, the wind, the house. All were going up and down, up and down, whoosh, up, whoosh, down. I had never felt anything like this before. I laid on the raised platform, praying that my weight could keep and hold the house down. Dogs and cats took shelter under my body, and I'm sure the, ra- the rats found refuge under the soap dish, their favorite midnight snack. The disaster that felt like forever passed before the sun rose, and at sunrise we emerged from our hiding spot. Some houses were missing walls, others roofs. Fallen token trees mixed with large pieces of mango corrugated tin from the school's roof scattered across the entire island. Men were collecting coconut spines and pandanus leaves for women and girls. They were weaving new thatch, while young boys straddled roofs installing and adjusting thatch pieces, piece by piece. In collective fashion, the entire village worked together to repair what had been destroyed. They did not wait for insurance adjusters or relief workers or even the leader to step forward. Their collective action to repair and recover together seemed nothing less than instinctive. That's when I began to understand what Mikhail, my language instructor, meant when he said in Kiribati that the we is bigger than the I. Ta-da. Wow. That was, that was some powerful stuff. Um, you know, we're looking we're looking forward to reading to reading the whole thing. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um we appreciate you for um we appreciate you sharing that with us and uh with our listeners. Um and I think that's a that's really a great way to, to wrap up all of what we've been uh speaking about today. Um, you know, really humanizing what's happening on the islands, um the issues that that climate change really brings about. Um, and also we, we appreciate you taking the time out to, to come on here and, and speak with us. Thank you for the opportunity. And like I know that Tom always says, climate change is the greatest moral challenge of our 21st century. Yeah. And there's, there's no easy solutions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so 
thank you, Dr. Roman, for, for coming on. Um, this was the first segment of Anthro Alert, um, so stay tuned. We will have another guest for the second hour. Um, Dr. Roman, thank you for coming on, and we wish you the best of luck with the rest of your work, um, you know, promoting um, really Kid, uh, Kidabas and your work and your book. Um, and so thank you and good luck. Thank you. All right. All right, stay tuned, everyone. We'll be, we'll be back shortly.